Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast with me, Dr. Samantha Cotrera. Many of you know that I started this podcast as a way to share my academic conference presentations with a wider audience. I also have a video series called Imagining a New We that's designed for K-12 teachers and helping them think about their practice and pedagogy in more meaningful, inclusive, and transformative ways. Just after the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic, I recorded a video for that series asking how we would teach history after this. I didn't have any answers. I still don't. But in asking the question, I was able to connect to a wide variety of people in the history and heritage field about whether their ideas of history have changed because of this moment, how they think teaching history will shift after this moment, and how notions of community, collaboration, and creativity, the imagining a new we that I named the video series after, may be developed or curtailed during and after this time. All of these videos are available on YouTube. You can search for my name to find the channel. But the conversations have been so rich that I wanted to provide another way for people to access them. This podcast episode and the rest in the Pandemic Pedagogy series is an unedited audio version of one of those video conversations. As an unedited version, you may hear buffering or a prompt to re-ask a question or even the inclusion of a cat. But the content and quality of the conversation remains the same. In this conversation, I speak to Natasha Henry. Natasha Henry is the president of the Ontario Black History Society. She's a historian. She's an educational consultant. She is the foremost expert in Black Canadian history education in Ontario. And she's also a doctoral candidate. So that maybe next year or in a year or so, we'll be able to call her Dr. Natasha Henry. Uh, Natasha and I spoke the day before the Black Lives Matter um, protests began again after George Floyd. Floyd's murder. Um, I posted this after the protest began. And, you know, you can really be able to see a lot of these themes about anti-racist education, um, greater inclusion of Black histories in our classrooms as themes that didn't just arise with George Floyd's murder, as a lot of us know, but are longstanding uh, issues that we need to address in our classrooms. She and I discuss the how the, the pandemic parallels some longstanding issues as it relates to Black and African Canadian experiences, the preservation of certain buildings, and the need for greater inclusion in the curriculum. This was a really fantastic talk. It was really wonderful to meet her. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so Natasha, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. I know that you are so busy, but I am so uh, excited that you are here to share your decades of experience in this field. So thank you so much. You're welcome, and I'm so happy to join you in this conversation, Samantha. I think you're, like, I just think that your perspectives of being a historian and author and educator and president of the Ontario Black History Society will just be a really rich addition to this. So thank you. Although I just listed a whole bunch of stuff, do you want to do your own introduction before we get started? Sure, sure. So um, yeah, uh, as you had mentioned, I have quite a bit of experience as an educator this year marks 21 years um, as an educator, mainly at the elementary level. Uh, And I'm also currently the president of the Ontario Black History Society. 
and um, around my work in, in education, I melded to my roles as a historian, as, a, as an educator, um, in my work as a curriculum consultant. And so I focus on developing resources uh, specific to teaching about Black Canadian and African diasporic experiences uh, for K to 12. And I am currently completing my PhD in history, uh, looking specifically at the enslavement of Africans in early Ontario. So my roles, um, you know, the work that I do overlaps in, in, in many respects, but it's something that, um, you know, you know, based on my passion that I really enjoy doing in whichever capacity. I said in my introduction um, before we got onto Zoom that soon I'll be saying like Dr. Natasha Henry. So that'll be good. Working on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, I've been using your work and familiar with your work since I've been in the field. So 10, 15 years. So again, it's just wonderful to connect. Um, yeah. so with this pandemic pedagogy series, I've been asking everyone the same three questions. And the first one is, have you thought of history any different because of this moment? Um, do you wanna share your thoughts on that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, for me, uh, I would say not so much. Uh, my views um, haven't changed. Uh, there are um, some longstanding feelings that remain. Uh, but they have been heightened by the realities of the COVID um, pandemic. Uh, for me, in the work that I've done, whether it's related to um, preserving and recovering narratives and experiences of people of African descent or with the curriculum, that for me, there's always been um, a sense of urgency around the work um, because of the long-standing historic um, absences and um, exclusions. And so for me, there's always been this sense of priority and, and that has been magnified for me by the, by the pandemic. Uh, it's also for me um, thinking about um, the very real fear of permanent loss. And again, that's not just, that's a feeling that's been with me for quite some time. Uh, as it relates to uh, African Canadian heritage, uh, as well as uh, there's always this passion and this burning to, um, to document and to recover Black and African Canadian uh, experiences. And so for me, the COVID pandemic, um, it's um, the conditions of the pandemic for me parallel um, some of the very long-standing conditions as it relates to Black um, and African Canadian um, experiences in the curriculum. And so these, um, these parallel conditions, they've, um, as it relates to retrieving and preserving Black stories, um, it brought to mind for as well the the realities around uh, black heritage sites and what's happening there and uh, and so these sites connected to black presence um, but what what is happening right um, there's been this ongoing perpetual threat uh, of some heritage sites as it relates to black history and when you think about um, how much is compounded now and in the near future, as it, you know, because of the conditions uh, of of the COVID pandemic, I also see, you know, as it relates to the teaching 
of black experiences in K-12 curriculum. There has been this, again, this pattern of this erasure and this exclusion. And so we do see that as the pandemic continues to impact the lives of people, we do see that um, very, that, you know, those parallel experiences of exclusion and um, you know, adverse threat for particular groups, and, and, and including people of African descent. Uh, and so, when I think about, um, you know, and I've been thinking a lot, you know, in, in, in preparation for our conversation around those parallels of the conditions of the, the pandemic for present-day realities, uh, along with you know, um, black heritage and black experiences in the curriculum. And so just going back to some of the heritage sites that I talked about, you know, there are sites that, in, you know, more recently have been under threat um, because of the, the similar conditions of, um, of the COVID pandemic such as scarcity of resources, right? Um, so we look at, for example, the Oro African Church in Oro Medante in uh, Simcoe County. And, um, you know, just recently they did um, actually uh, restore the church and there were some efforts there um, based on community uh, activism, working with different stakeholders, local and um, regional right and provincial stakeholders so there's that but then there's still this ongoing threat of what you know how long will this relic of a black presence remain with us i also think about um the salem chapel in niagara falls the bme church and that's the church where everyone knows harriet tubman attended while she lived in saint Catharines for 10 years and over the past couple of years you know there's been a, a real um urgent need for restoration efforts for this church um which has been claimed as a national heritage site by a lot of by a lot of people like right including our governments and other agencies but then you know, if we're claiming this heritage and we understand the threat that this site is going is, is facing, right? How much support does the, does it get? And again, you know, we want to maintain that heritage and make sure that another uh, this particular artifact um, is available for people to visit and to see and to experience that history. But then, you know, in, when it comes to the conversation around that support and particularly financial support, you know. Is it included in those factors equally? So there's that. And then one last um, very real and very pressing example is the Fugitive Slave Chapel in London, Ontario. And uh, a couple of years ago, it was uh, under threat of being demolished to make way um, for a parking lot by the owner. And um, through a lot of efforts, the church was moved and it's now sitting beside the the Bethel Emmanuel BME Church, which is, you know, the fu its future iteration of the Fugitive Slave Chapel. But it's been there, it hasn't been restored. There's a lot of um, issues around this restoration. And so as these conflicts continue to percolate, the site continues to be under threat. And so there's a lot of things at play uh, in terms of that. And, and, and to me, I saw that in terms of, again, like the scarcity of resources, how much access do, you know, Black heritage sites and organizations have to some of these resources to put them in a better situation um, moving forward. And so I very much see how that plays out um, for the pandemic, in, in relation to the pandemic. It also, for me, it makes a connection to the idea 
of, um, of social debt. And I think about, I've been thinking of, again, a lot about um, the impact that Black people are facing in COVID, uh, which we see in the United States and we see that here as well because of anti-Black racism um, and the racially disproportionate effects that, um, that are playing out in Black lives. And so with COVID, I see that that parallels, again, as it relates to either um, heritage sites, but also, again, the, um, the curriculum. Um, we think about, uh, I've been thinking about as well, when we think of the racial disproportionality um, that's ongoing because of COVID, I've been thinking about some of the, the frontline workers and how a lot of these people, the personal support workers, are Black women. Right, um, and, and so what have their experiences been like? And um, you know, what is the historic trajectory that led these women to be um, you know, overly represented in these, kinds of, um, in these kinds of occupations? And so I think I've been thinking about that as well. And when you think about you know, this, um, the emergency distance learning that's happening, right, in, in elementary school and secondary school, you know, responding to the COVID um, regulations and, and the shutdown, and what has been the curricular response from teachers and school boards as it relates to culturally relevant um, resources for teachers and for students uh, to represent um, Black and um, African Canadian experiences what has that, um, what has that been like? And so I've been, you know, there's a lot of parallels that I see. I, I, I it's not, a, you know, in, in a sense where I'm not saying that the, the death that I'm referring to equates to the death, the loss of an individual, of a family member, um, but that the conditions that um, make that happen disproportionately so for some segments of the population has been playing out for some time and has, and has been exacerbated by, um, by uh, by the COVID conditions, and so we do see you know lastly in terms of another oh, another parallel that I see is um, you know the, going back to what I talked about that permanent loss that sense of loss that possible permanent loss um, you know that will happen after things kind of settle and into a new norm what will that loss look like and in particular when we talk about um, you know, Black heritage sites, uh, you know, where will we be uh, after COVID, right, after things kind of settled down? What, what position will these organizations and these heritage sites be in? Um, so that's something that I've been thinking about. And then I also think about how, you know, with the, the curriculum and in this emergency distance learning situation, you know, I've seen where a lot of the resources that have been shared and are being used, you know, they intentionally or unintentionally kind of bring us back to the idea of a very um, strongly Eurocentric focus uh, in the curriculum, in the history mm -hmm. curriculum, or in other, you know, in other subject areas. And so what does that mean for, um, for Black youth, for Black children? There is, again, it's a contributing factor to this, this sense of loss of uh, a sense of self, of the sense of identity, um, and, you know, forging that racial pride around those experiences. So if you don't have, if we're already 
struggling for that uh, inclusion and that integration in the curriculum and in classrooms on a, in the regular conditions, you know, how is that playing out now, you know, within the emergency distance um, learning situation? Uh, and so those are some things that I've been thinking about in terms of the very strong parallels to, to these, this situation exacerbated by, by the pandemic. Thank you for that. Um, it's so multi-layered, but also it, it also really highlights the importance of recognizing the, those, those multiple layers of things. So one of the things I'm hearing from you is that it's exacerbating issues that were already apparent when it came to recognizing, acknowledging, preserving Black Canadian history. It's exacerbating that, but also it's even more important to recognize that in this particular context um, because of the ways um, inequities and marginalization works. So it's like if all those rainbows in the windows saying we're all in this together, one of the ways to also recognize that is to preserve histories that demonstrate that legacy of why there is a disproportionate amount of black and racialized women in a lot of these frontline essential positions. Um, I think that's a really powerful way to, because a lot of people are like, well, I hope things are different, but what is that action? And that can be a really important source of action to ensure that these sites, for example, are preserved and ensure that we are that we are bringing in the histories of these sites into our classrooms as well. Right. Yes. And um, and I should actually just um, as just hearing you talk about that as well. I did want to just mention a couple of other things that it um, it kind of connects with um, as it relates to the, the first question here. I also do see, you know, when we're talking about the racial racial disproportionality, I also think we've been looking at the impact of state policies on Black people in the province of, of Ontario. And, uh, you know, with the, you know, dealing with um, COVID and the documentation of data, um, the, you know, brought to mind the, the government of Ontario and their reticence to collect race-based data um, mm -hmm. around, right, around, around the, around the, who was impacted by, by COVID. And, um, and to me, that also parallels, you know, the, the Black experiences and histories that become hidden because of the stance that this, the state, the pro, right, the government often takes as it relates to, you know, not wanting to deal with, um, you know, race, not wanting to deal with mm -hmm. anti-Black racism, mm -hmm. not wanting to have that disaggregated information. And I see that linked to um, the state curriculum, the, so the, the curriculum of the province, um, where you still don't have any learning expectations as it relates to Black Canadian experiences that all students in Ontario have to learn about. And so what the result is in this refusal to pay attention to the very specificities of race in the province, whether it's in you know, the health, um, in health data or in the curriculum, is that it's, it becomes um, institutionalized erasure, right? And, and, and so how do we think about um, addressing that mm -hmm. uh, you know, during this during the this pandemic, uh, and you know, in terms of you know, again, uh, looking at how we can pay attention to that, looking at 
the historical continuity of some of these gaps and being mindful of hopefully, you know, addressing these things so that on the other side of the pandemic that we do begin to see things, um, to do see things differently. Uh, and I also, you know, was brought to mind around the resilience and the continuity of activism of Black people, because getting back to the rate collection of race-based data because of COVID, you know, because a lot of people have been so vocal in different ways and different platforms, we have the province responding that they will be collecting race-based data as one example. And so I think about, you know, how uh, Black people have been, you know, and always have been creative in adjusting to the conditions and to the climate and how their activism has been ongoing, even through this particular time uh, of COVID. And, you know, people have been using a lot of social media to act to, to mobilize voices and to press for concerns and to seek responses, right, from the government and from other um, agencies. And so we continue to see that collective action uh, from, the, from Black communities throughout this particular time. And I will talk a bit about that after in terms of the documentation of that. And I also see that in this collective, um, you know, this community that, you know, we're seeing a community reconstitute itself in different ways, particularly in a virtual form. Um, you know, and so whether it's through the activism or whether it's through, you know, some of the events that have come about as a result of mm -hmm. the COVID condition, um, you know, it's been really uh, interesting to see as a, you know, as a person, as an individual and as, as a historian. And so I think been thinking about, um, you know, how people have been able to, you know, with the social distancing measures, create some kind of sense of connection and community uh, in spite of, of these conditions. And so these are some of the, you know, so these are some of the ideas that um, I would love to see that, you know, how we will record this and document this as part of our history later on after, um, you know, after the, the, the pandemic. I think that that is a really, amazing example. Thank you so much for making that link between the um, the people advocating for race-based data related to COVID and without having that data, the erasure of those experiences in history because that, that has been ongoing throughout the histories of Canada <laughs> on this land that we call Canada. And I think it's a really powerful example to, to think about in our history classes, for example, about the evidence that we're using sometimes have been crafted by the state to be purposefully uh, exclusive to one set of experiences and mm -hmm. to link that too to the ongoing activism. Um, uh, Dr. Funke Aladajebi's talk when she was saying that like, a lot of black activists have been talking about these things that are just that, are, that we can just see differently, see in a more mainstream way right now, but like these are the same issues that have been ongoing. Um, I think yeah. those are really powerful examples to pull up. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I, I mean, I think with, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, calls for documentation of histories and experiences during COVID. Um, we, people have been documenting participating in the documentation, whether or not they know it, you know, on social media, for example, mm -hmm. I've been seeing activities 
where you know students are encouraged to keep a journal a covid journal to document you know what they and their families have been going through um you know during during this time and so we, we you know it's important for us to do that for us at the ontario black history society we've been having this conversation about you know what can we do right um, as a historical society to document some of these to some to some of these experiences and um, you know so we're you know thinking about you know how can we document again some of these experiences of black frontline workers um, again paying attention to that historical context of, of, of why they're in these particular roles thinking about um, you know some of the the less savory experiences uh, and during during COVID, uh, such as the racial profiling that Black youth, for example, have been experiencing, um, you know, in some places here in Canada, because of the you know because of the the, or the orders around public space, the use of public space. Um, but I also have been seeing as well how can we document thinking about how can we document Black creativity during this time of COVID. Um, and there's been, uh, you know, a lot of examples that um, that have been wonderful. Looking at how young people have been using TikTok, um, right, around to communicate and to to capture stories. Uh, thinking again uh, right about some of the events and how, for myself, even participating in some of those online events. Just this past Saturday, there was um, a versus um, sound clash with it was a base is a reggae dance hall sound class so beanie man versus bounty killer and you know just the 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 community of people that were involved in this event um over five hundred thousand people worldwide people Amazing. right such as myself were watching and tuned in looking at how you know the 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 atmosphere and the the feeling the vibe was adapted to this online platform um you know is really something to to think about to document and to see you know to look at how this was done and so there's a lot of things um you know to, to a lot of things to to talk about and to record and to document as a heritage and historical society um, that we would want to pass on to people of future generations as well. And then I also connect that to my work for my dissertation where, you know, it seems quite eerie that, you know, for my study, I want to create a database of African people who were enslaved in early Ontario recognizing the importance of the platform of, you know, of the virtual platform. And here we are at the time of COVID when I'm starting my database and really seeing how important and how useful it could be to have, you know, these stories um, documented online for posterity, um, you know, to carry on the, these stories and to engage with it in a different way. And so, you know, it's it, when we think of how we've been continuing um, history, recording history, document history through this time, there are some things that will definitely change and um, we need to be part of that and we need to make sure that the experiences and the stories of uh, Black Canadians are, are carried forward. One of the things that I am really interested to watch the evolution of is how the virtual communities that are being developed now because of COVID help shift and change those those narratives as well, right? Like 
if you have never been to a dance hall event, but you can do it from the comfort of your own home and like explore what that looks like, you might have like, you might be able to build different types of community. And I, and, and so I'm very interested to see how that will develop. And I think that's a really like good example of like, this transnational community from around the world can all participate in this event and, and like enjoy this event. And I think that'll be, I think that'll be really interesting, but, but it, like you said, it also, we also need to record it and document it for, for what it, for what it is and what it's doing. So this makes me think of my second question. Um, because we covered a lot of ground, but I'm interested in if you think that that we are that we are going to take some of this learning and translate it into our classrooms after this. Do you think after this, the ways that we teach history will shift um, or sh or should shift? I think the answer to that is yes. But do you think it will shift after this? Well, I think it should. I agree with you absolutely. <laughs> that it should shift. Um, I have two responses. I have a no and I have a yes in terms okay, of. Okay, <laughs> so I, I have to give you both. So um, I don't think, for me personally, I don't think that it will change much, especially as it relates to um, the more formal classroom, the official um, instruction um, in, in the classroom setting, because the structures remain intact. Right. Well, and so um, unless and until you know the ongoing push for change um, happens, I think that things will continue somewhat in, in, in the same in the same measure. Um, however, and, and and so right. So there's this activism that's happening, and I should say right. There's activism happening at the same time when we're dealing with this, um, with COVID, as it relates to um, the experiences of Black youth uh, around the curriculum and around their learning in public schools. And so I hope that with this ongoing um, push and agitation, that there will be some change if the structural change can happen, right? And so whether it's the inclusion of curriculum um, expectations so that it's not just left up to individual teachers to be inclusive of um of black histories and black experiences um or whether it's um you know other you know other kinds of institutional changes that would allow for um a more reimagining of that kind of formal instruction um and so then so in that sense you know it's 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 contingent upon what will happen in the long run. I do also see a response to this lack of change um, by Black families during this uh, emergency distance learning in that I've noticed that a lot of Black families are choosing to kind of opt out of the official formal instruction that teachers are, are, are wanting to engage in in this, in this new environment because it's not responsive to their child's right cultural um, cultural mm. needs, and so families are opting to, I guess, homeschool in a sense, right? Given the conditions, and and are deliberately choosing to um, to use Afrocentric um, approaches to teaching their children, being more inclusive 
of you know African um, experiences, whether it's uh, early African civilizations or being more intentional in teaching their children about um, you know black experiences, you know going along with some of maybe some of the expectations of of, of, of the classroom. And that is a response because of that, you know, that failure of change in the in the formal structure of things. And so black families are deciding, well, this is an opportunity to do some unlearning and some new learning, um, you know, as a family together to better ground our, our children in their sense of self and their sense of their, their racial identity, um, because they have not been getting that. In the, in, in the classroom. And so this is the opportunity to do that. Um, as it relates to more community-based education, uh, I am more hopeful um, in terms of seeing some changes. And I, I think about the work that the Ontario Black History Society that we um, have been doing. And, and, and we have to shift. We absolutely have to and are shifting um, you know, in order to be more relevant and more accessible during this particular time. Um, our programming, a uh, strong focus of our programming is to educate, whether it's the general public, whether it's young people, or whether it's to serve as a resource um, for educators. Uh, and so for us, not being able to have our events, our in-person events right now has caused us to rethink and to reimagine our work so that we can continue our commitment to education on Black histories, past and present. Um, and so in that sense, I see that, then you did mention this earlier as well, that um, individuals and organizations who have always been pushing for change have always sought creative ways and new ways and different ways to engage and to be accessible. And so that's what we will continue to do um, in order to, as, as I said, in order to be accessible. And so we have to use the online platforms as, as one sense, um, whether it's through new online exhibits, digitizing some of our resources and our artifacts, uh, you know, hosting online events. These are things that are crucial in terms of um, thinking about and, and engaging in learning uh, on Black histories in new ways. Uh, yes, and I think that, you know, like I said, like there could be an element where there is a, a bit of a revitalization of certain engagement with community histories in because of this in really powerful ways um, and it's been like I think the Ontario Black History Society is, has has had especially for the last five years or so a really robust online presence but even more so now I see posts I see things to think about and engage with especially because I am home and it's a lot easier to read three articles about something rather than just say, okay, I'll read this one article on the weekend. And mm -hmm. it, uh, it, it could be, it could be really exciting, but it's interesting what you're saying about the structures of history curriculum. Just one second. Cause I have like cat hair sticking on my lipstick and it's like, sorry. Okay. I'm just going to edit that out. Okay. <laughs> it's interesting that you're talking about the structures of curriculum because you know I speak to a lot of teachers for this series that are saying it's been a lot easier to cut things out and really focus on like student-centric learning 
And mm -hmm. I'm a little worried that for some teachers that are engaging in that now, we'll go back to very, very didactic types of teaching and learning practices once they get back in the classroom as a way to grasp for normality. But often mm -hmm. that grasp for the normality is a grasp for like white supremacist narratives. And I am worried that there could be a push for greater tradition in the classroom after this. And other than people that I've spoken to talking about their own experience as parents, people haven't on this series talked about parents yet. And that's a really interesting element that you brought up because it will be interesting if parents really force and push for different types of engagements with learning different content when their student goes back, uh, whatever that looks like, because they have been engaging and thinking about what they want their child to formally and informally know because of the unschooling, homeschooling that they have been doing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and, and so you, you've presented another, uh, you know, possibility upon return, you know, the idea of, of returning to normal and what that, that meaning may hold for some people, right? And is it this return to, like you said, is this return to normal? Is it re return to um, more, you know, white dominant narratives? And so, you know, it's important for us to, to think about that because these are ideas are not neutral. What will it mean for um, the acknowledgement and the inclusion of black stories and, 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 black, and black narratives? And so, you know, it raises for me a couple of other questions as well. I think I've been thinking about, as I've been working through and working on um, my dissertation, and, and, and looking at the digital humanities approach that I'm taking to, to the enslavement of Africans here in, in, in early Canada, you know, thinking about the importance of the availability and the accessibility of black data. And so whether that's through, again, that this, this stream, this thread of conversation around COVID and that experience, but also, you know, historically, um, you know, past and present stories as well that need to be made accessible. And so in, if teachers are, you know, hopefully um, in the choices that they're giving to students in, in emergency distance learning, that some of those choices do include Black stories, Black experiences, um, you know, in, in particular to, to, to Canadian history, that that's important. And then if it's this then return when returned to the classroom, is there going to be more agitation and more recognition of the importance of, of, of making sure that these stories are available for all young students, particularly for black youth, but absolutely necessary for all students? Because if we want to, to address some of the, the, the issues of inequities and racism, uh, all of our young people need to be educated critically in a way that helps to see things improve, right, as we move on in the future. I also wonder what the after effect will be as it relates to um, the teaching of, of, of Black histories in particular. I think about what will happen in the university sense when, you know, it's inevitable that there will be some recovery austerity measures that universities, that post-secondary institutions are going to undertake. Um, and so what will that mean for uh, the very recent headway made in Black studies here in Canada? 
um, just looking at what's been happening in the United States, where some some uh, academics have been talking about getting laid off in particular fields and disciplines, particularly um, Black histories and Black studies, uh, uh, you know, that the institutions are implementing there. What will that mean? Will that happen here, right? Um, and then think, and again, what will it mean for Black scholars and for Black academics who want to document and record and retrieve, whether it's the experience through COVID or whether it's more, um, you know, just teaching and, and recovering black, black stories and Black experiences, what will it mean in terms of opportunities post-COVID as some of these institutions seek to um, you know, to address a lot of the losses, the financial losses, who will bear the weight of that? And often when we look at racial disproportionality, again, it's, it's you know, for example, it's Black people who will face some of that impact. And so I really do wonder what that will look like um, post-COVID. Yeah, you know, I was talking with um, Sean uh, Koresh from York University, who is a historian, an environmental historian, but he's also uh, the associate uh, dean in uh, liberal arts and professional studies right now at York. And mm -hmm. we were talking about how important a, like a liberal arts education is right now. And, you know, we were talking, I think I, I said in the introduction, I don't know if we said it together, but like the importance of interdisciplinarity and something like Black Studies demonstrates mm -hmm. that critical liberal arts, interdisciplinary, historical um, knowledge and foundation and mobilization that is is going to be essential for rebuilding a world after this. Um, I just wanted to show you what is happening here. Sorry, just there's this happening. <laughs> so, I just, I just, I'm just multitasking a little bit. You're recording. <laughs> um, you know, and I also just want to pick up on something else you had said about like, you know, we're talking about black students, but not just black students, because to me, this is a really good segue into my last question about imagining a new we. Um, and, and you've used the word imagining a little bit too. You know, I've worked in classrooms where teachers will say like, we need to do Canadian history first, and then we'll get to black history. And, uh, and like, that is super problematic, but in particular, it's super problematic if all of the students in your class are black. And, uh, you know, I worked with one teacher who was like, well, we have this one white student, like we have to make sure that his history is also being covered. And I'm like, well, this is his history because like, the, the histories of, of white racism is integral to who he is as a white person. And it was really uh, disturbing to have teachers, even with articulated commitments to anti-racist teaching articulate history in these ways and that's why my upcoming book transforming the Canadian history classroom imagining a new we is really about foregrounding ensuring that we are foregrounding the complexities of being Canadian in our Canadian history classrooms for our students who are Canadian um, who might be black Canadian, who might be Caribbean Canadian, who might be white Canadian, who might just say I'm Canadian, um, uh, regardless of my racial or ethnic or um, uh, cultural affiliations. I just want to be understood as Canadian first. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts about this notion of imagining a new we. Do you, do you think that we can or will be able to imagine a new we 
differently because of this moment? Um, more because of this moment? Do you think it will? Do you think it will exacerbate, like you said, divisions that are already there? Or do you think there's promise for maybe for understanding the ways that these structures, like you said, can be um, are are exacerbating racial um, inequities? Well, let me um, just kind of piggyback off of what you were saying in your intro to this third question, that there's on the flip side, we also have educators who will say, well, you know, we don't have any black students in our classrooms, mm. um, you know, depending on the, 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 the geographical location, or there may be only one or two black students. So do we need to focus on including and acknowledging black history. So there's that. Um, and that's something that plays out a lot in, in, in different areas. And so, you know, it really is about whether or not it shouldn't be incumbent upon the presence of a black person in the space to dictate whether or not experiences of black people in Canada are taught in the classroom. But again, getting back to the whole structure of things, what is guiding the responses of a lot of educators is the exclusion of specific learning expectations in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And so that void, that gap, allows for that kind of response to say, I'm going to teach what's in the curriculum, which is very Eurocentric, very white, um, right? And so I'm going to teach that. That is the, the official you know, um, expectations that should be taught. And then all of the other stories, the kind of optional topics um, in the curriculum document uh, or any other kind of stories are that, you know, will be brought in at different times as add-ons, not as part of the Canadian narrative. And so I do think that if, you know, on, you know, post pandemic, if, you know, the continued decades long advocacy of black families and communities is realized and we get some expectations in the curriculum, that helps to disrupt that in some sense, right, in terms of, um, you know, official guidance and, and structure, you know, we also have to disrupt mindsets and ideologies that are held by right by educators in terms of how what they view to be important and what they view to be Canadian history and Canadian narratives as well so then there's that other aspect as well and so a part of me uh, yes is hopeful that you know that we could see something different um, and again it's, it's it's just it's going to be the continuity of this push and this agitation by Black families and Black communities for right for recognition of of these story of these um these histories, uh, and thinking about um in this this we that she said right imagining a new we and the 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 conversation or the discourse um, during the pandemic is we're in this together but that is not a reality. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have to, in our classrooms, be able to teach our students to critically debunk that and deconstruct that. When we say we're all in this together, that is not a reality. However, it can be used as a call to action. Right. And in recognizing that that's not the case, you know, if how can we change it? How can we make that true? How can we encourage and, and, and um, create spaces for young people to 
talk about and to learn about belonging or not belonging, about care, collective community care, um, and thinking about concern for, for all, right? If we want that to be the true story, we then have to be able to create classrooms where we are recognizing and teaching about differences and inequalities, right? And going from historic through to contemporary. We have to do that or else we're failing our young people. And if we want them as adults to be in a better position to address some of the things that we're facing now during this pandemic, we have to be intentional in our instruction, right? And in our pedagogical approaches to teaching them. And so how will we force, um, you know, how will we force institutions, whether it's uh, as it relates to health and education um, and other institutions to address these differences and these inequalities that have been playing out post, during, and I mean, sorry, pre, during, and will play out post COVID. Um, and the classroom really lends itself again to some really deep meaningful engagement with some of these issues. And if as educators, if we can do that in large numbers, not just one-offs and not, you know what I mean? If we can really do that in a more intentional, more, um, I guess, systemic way um, through, for example, an anti-racist pedagog pedagogical approach, you know, we would really have some people uh, some young people to reckon with. They are already asking these questions. They are already making these observations of difference and inequality. And we have to create the space for them to learn about that and to engage with that and to be the ones to come up with solutions because they're very much um, you know, capable of doing that. And so we do have the power to reimagine and to define we in a way that really is um, inclusive of everyone in all of their differences, not just trying to make everyone the same, right? Um, yeah. And making things equitable. Uh, this we that we are envisioning, this future we, this new we, has to be one that things are equitable for all. And that means taking different approaches to address different issues so that we all then become in a, in a better yeah. position together. Yeah, you know, uh, like I love how you were like, you know, if we do this in our classrooms, we're, uh, the youth are going to be a force to be reckoned with because what I've seen with my work with youth is that they are just dying for recognition um, mm -hmm. of the complexities and they want to be engaged with these ideas in the classroom because they don't know where to put their their lived experiences of inequities and the things that they are seeing about um, discrimination, they don't know where to put that energy. They want to understand the historical legacy of that and they're looking for their classrooms as well as their, their families, their communities, their, their places of worship um, to be able to make sense of that. And I think, yes, just, yeah, sorry, just as you mentioned there as well, oftentimes these young people experience these things and they think it's in isolation mm -hmm. right because they may not and some people have these conversations at home but they may not have had the opportunity to really contextualize their experience into a broader context historical context and so you know thinking like we think about 
the impact that that will then have on a young person if they go through life not recognizing and not knowing that there are systemic forces at play in that ex those experiences that they may think is just happening to them or it may they may place the blame on themselves and so we do we have a responsibility right in order to to help them to bring their entire selves to the learning space, whether it's a physical classroom or whether it's online, in order to engage with these thoughts and these experiences and these ideas. Yeah, there's this one article, I can't, I can't think of the reference off the top of my head, but due to the magic of editing, that reference is right below this video now, <laughs> that said like, the Canadian youth in particular are really proud of the cultural diversity that, that they understand to be Canada, but that, that they are gonna get uh, they're going to get more disillusioned by what that means the more that they have personal instances, personal experiences of discrimination that they don't, that they can't link to a systematic element of, you know, like you saying, like having curriculum that doesn't have a curriculum expectation related to a very long, rich history of Black Canadians on this land. And, you know, when I, when I preface that question, I don't mean to suggest that just because there's black students in the room, that's the only reason why you have to take, that you have to teach black history, but rather like the violence of not teaching black history is even more apparent when you, you are, when you have black students in the classroom and you're like, look at what I'm doing. I am not withholding my responsibility to demonstrate the complex legacies that frame all of our lives in this space. So thank you for just uh, <laughs> for making that distinction if that wasn't clear. Um, and then that's, yeah, that wasn't how I, I took it, but it's just to, you know, to demonstrate no, no, right, how right. it plays out on, on, on both sides. And so there is still um, a level of violence that is experienced in, the, in, in both scenarios, mm -hmm. right? And so we just being cognizant of how that that could play out and then how those those narratives are then used to kind of uh sometimes to silence and to right to silence um those those stories mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and silence and silence the experiences of young people in the room because even if they don't know the whole history like their own personal histories like it's embodied in a lot of ways like you know, I have yeah. been in classrooms as a student where I'm just like, this does not feel right. Like this does not make sense with my experiences. And, um, and, and students feel that too, right? Like other, like young people feel that even if they can't articulate it. And if we fail to do what we're talking about, if we fail to do that, then we fail to bring in another generation of young people to, in, in terms of getting them to see how relevant history is to their lives. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, as I like to say to young people, that you are history in the making. And so history isn't just, you know, 1814, 1834, or 1956. History is today, and you are part of history as well. But if we, again, do not, um, you know, provide them with the space to have those skills in order and to see those connections, we are not going to bring in another generation of people 
who love history and who understand its complexities, who want to engage with it, who want to revise it, who want to present it in different creative ways, um, you know, we will fail to address that. And um, I know outside, I don't know how much out of scope this is, but you know, there's the conversations with that, with history departments or how can they remain relevant today? right? In terms of whether it's undergraduate studies or graduate studies, how can they continue to bring in young people into the field? Well, it starts in elementary and in high school, right? And if we don't engage young people with history in very creative ways, in ways that is of interest to them, if we're not meeting them where they are, then we're also, you know, failing in that respect in order to grow and enhance the discipline. Yeah, I was talking to another teacher earlier today and she was saying, you know, her grade 10 students would say to her like, Miss, like, why is this important? And she's like, I realized that really what they're asking is how is this relevant and important to my life today? And I think those of us who are enmeshed in the field of history know that, but we also know, hopefully, that there are a lot of 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 5-year-olds who will continuously wonder that if they are not learning histories that demonstrate the complexities of the world that they know. So thank you so much for this, Natasha. This was amazing. Wonderful. Yes. Thank you, Samantha. That was a great conversation. Thank you so much. And I will provide the links to the Ontario Black History Society and the rest of the work that you would like to share below this video so people know how to get in touch with you as well as to support the work of the Ontario Black History Society. So thank you again. And I look forward to calling you doctor in the future, not so distant future. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay, bye. Yeah, and let me know whatever you need me to send to you. If you know links or anything, then just let me know and I'll send them along. Sure. Um, do you want to just say goodbye really quickly and then I want to talk to you about something else, like not for the video series. Okay, and thank you for having me, Samantha. This is a wonderful conversation. I really wanted to thank you for creating this platform for history educators in um, you know, their different spheres to engage in this conversation. Uh, is something that's really important and um, you know we do hope that we continue to engage young people in history learning about history and teaching about history and so I'm looking forward to you know your ongoing work as well in this in this area so thank you again well thank you and likewise I, I hope we find more points of collaboration uh, in the future whether that is virtually or in person so thank you again okay okay bye Bye. Thank you for listening to the Pandemic Pedagogy series of the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. My first book, Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, Imagining a New We, will be available in the latter half of 2020. Order on Amazon or through your local bookseller today.